Today's podcast is brought to you by Gamefly.com. Sign up for a premium, free, 30-day, one-game-out trial specifically for Picture Lock listeners at GameflyOffer.com slash PictureLock. You're listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous, award-winning Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. The 2018 DC Black Film Festival Call for Entries is now open. Entries are rolling in daily, which I find extremely awesome as the founder of the festival. The festival will be held August 16th through 18th at the Miracle Theater in Southeast Washington, D.C. Filmmakers can submit through Film Freeway. Visit dcbff.org for more details. Look forward to seeing your films. Quick shout out to friend of the show and founder director of DC Webfest, Otessa Godar. The festival will take place April 6th through 8th in Washington, D.C., and this will be the festival's sixth year. So congrats, Otessa. So you can look forward to hearing more about the fest and from filmmakers who will have their work exhibited during the festival. This week, I have more interviews with film fatales and a filmmaker whose web series is going to be playing at DC WebFest this year. I have director Victoria Negri of Gold Star, Aram Parveen Bilal, director of Forbidden Steps, Fran Burst Terranella, director of The Twelve Lives of Sissy Carlisle, and Sonia O'Hara, the creator and star of Doomsday. Now, I want you to take note at something during this episode. The way I've done my workflow as of late is recording interviews ahead of time, weeks in advance, uh, in a couple hour blocks, and then matching interviews based on the theme of the show for the week or by event dates, things that are happening, etc. The point of me talking about the sausage making is there's a theme that comes through in this episode that I noticed uh, as I was putting it together. The women I speak with talk about writing content they want to see because what they were being given after years of study and training was either not challenging in comparison to the training and education they'd put themselves through, inauthentic or contrary to their values. The Me Too movement was started 12 years ago by Tirana Burke, and it just recently was popularized by Alyssa Milano about four months ago. We witnessed Frances McDormand take the stage this past Sunday at Oscar night and say two words, inclusion writer. What I found interesting in editing this show together was how these women of different ages were saying the same things in their own way. Listen to what Fran says in her interview about favors happening in her younger days. I'm taking this moment to hop on the soapbox to say that we're in a space and time where time is definitely up and the playing field needs to be evened. I'm doing my part and you can do yours by supporting these awesome women and other female filmmakers, writers, cinematographers, etc. I'm certainly an advocate for diversity and representation on the big screen as well as behind the scenes. If you see a Kickstarter campaign with an idea you support, please get behind it. Check out the films of the filmmakers you hear on the show. Be on the right side of history because everyone's lives are enriched by inclusion. And I can't stress enough how much we need to hear everyone's voice. 
Everyone should have a fair shot at reaching their full potential and no one should have to sacrifice their morals or body to get there. Okay, I'm off the box. I just felt like I had to say that because as I listened to all of the interviews, it's just something that was really coming out to me. Um, so uh, I got the platform to do it. I wanted to talk about it, but Film Fatales and a DC Webfest filmmaker coming at you. That's all ahead on Picture Lock. Hi, this is Zebo Lai, director of Time Before, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. And in the film Gold Star, after dropping out of music school, Vicky drifts aimlessly between her family's house in Connecticut and an itinerant existence in New York. When her father suffers a debilitating stroke, she has to become the, his primary caretaker. Vicky resists connecting with him and making peace with herself, but finds a way forward thanks to a new friend and a life-changing event. I have the writer, director, and star of the film on the line with me, Victoria Negri. Welcome to Picture Lock. Thanks. Thanks so much, Kevin. First question I usually start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to um, really pinpoint an exact moment because I grew up, I basically, every weekend I lived in a movie theater. My my entire family would go see movies um, over the weekend and sometimes two in a day. Um, so it's just this real nostalgic thing for me. Just being in a movie theater reminds me of home in a, in a weird way, but I don't, I don't know what it was or what movie. I always loved movies. Um, my father was much older. Uh, obviously the film is personal. So, uh, yeah, my dad was 63 when I was born, but we always had, you know, older classic films playing in the house. AMC and TCM were always um, on the TV. So I was, yeah, I was exposed to a lot of different films at a, at a young age and, um, yeah, just loved it. It was, it was a thing I did with my family and it, it really made me love film. Yeah, you know, I'm always fascinated in how, um, you know, our older generation can influence us as younger filmmakers and the fact that, you know, you grew up and TCM was always on and things like that. Because honestly, like at the time when you watch it, you're, you're not understanding like this is actually like great education, but we don't realize it. Um, so if you could like give us a little history lesson in terms of how you actually got started in the industry. Yeah, I, I actually started in front of the camera uh, at a young age. I really wanted to act in films. I didn't really understand filmmaking, but I, I loved what I saw and I wanted to be a part of movies no matter what. So, you know, you see the actors. So I wanted to do that. Um, so I went to um, I went to Tisch at NYU for acting and then I graduated and I grew very quickly frustrated with everything I was auditioning for. Um, I think my brain always worked from a film filmmaking perspective uh, without even realizing it because I, I watched so many movies growing up that, um, you know, they all just kind of like sunk in and it was in my bones. But um, yeah, so I uh, I started to work behind the camera. I, I started to just PA. I did set photography. I, I just wanted to help out in whatever way possible um, all, the, all the while writing scripts on my own. Um, so yeah, it was kind of this journey from in front of the camera to behind to behind it, um, which which has been really really exciting and, and fun. I still I still love acting and, and 
would definitely, you know, be in films as an actress. But um, yeah, I just want to keep making stuff. Uh, it's 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 an evolution of of how I want to um, be a storyteller, which uh, which is really cool. It is. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and I am talking with the writer, director, star of the film, Gold Star, Victoria Negri. Uh, Victoria, if you could, for a second, uh, I kind of hit, you know, what the film is about um, in the intro, but could you tie us into, like, the personal connection and how that inspired you to write it? Because I'm sure it has to be, um, in some ways, a way kind of, like, to get out maybe some of the emotions that you had at the time. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually talking about this with a friend the other day saying, I don't even, I don't know why I made it. Like at the time I had no idea why I was doing it other than I had to. And I think it was, I think it was that like, I felt so alone when I was taking care of my father, despite, you know, having friends and family. It's when, when you're doing it and you're the only one in the house with an 88 year old man who can't physically take care of himself. That's, that's a a lonely, scary thing. Not only lonely physically, but lonely because you're dealing with these emotions and you, he can't even talk. Um, So there's no kind of communication uh, really. Um, So, yeah, I think it was just, I needed, I needed to feel less alone. I needed to make this film. I needed to involve a team. I needed people to see that, um, you know, the experience of being a caregiver in your early 20s is something that's um, not easy and, and, and really difficult. And I've since learned after releasing this film that it's um, a lot more common than I thought. I've had a lot of conversations with people that are going through or went through something similar, and it's it's been really great. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. As I was doing it, I just kind of powered through and maybe ignored some, <laughs> some things that maybe I should have been thinking about in a different way, but channeling, I don't know. I think I just, I need to channel things through art and film and writing and, um, yeah, no, you just know, worked really hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that totally makes sense. Um, I think as artists and creatives, like, that's how we deal with things. Like, there's so many times in life that, like, um, I think about certain issues that are just, like, hot-buttoned issues. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't kill somebody in real life. But, you know, you could, like, beat somebody up on, on you know, the screen. And kind of in that way, it's like a transference of energy, but in a proper way where, like, afterwards we can talk about it. And I think yeah. I think what's really interesting about, um, you know, your story is, for me personally, so, you know, I just lost my grandmother um, this past December. Oh, and sorry. so Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, but I watched my, my dad and his sisters um, really take care of her in, in those mm. final six months. And so, like you said, it's like, you, you feel as though you're doing it for yourself, but it winds up becoming something that's a lot bigger because, yeah, you're right. Like, other people are dealing with it as well. And it's kind of, like, great when you can see it on the big screen and kind of it helps to process those feelings. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that I really tried to get across in the film that I don't think many people talk about, and it's a really, like, honest thing, is that no one wants to be doing it. My character in the film really just wants to run away and live her own <laughs> life. She's she's in her early 20s. She wants to go do what everyone else is doing. So uh, it, it really comes from that place, too. Like, you, you, you're you in denial of a lot of things. You're in denial of 
your your father or mother your parent dying and you don't want to be experiencing it so yeah it's the film really taps into that it's that um you know place of being in between of of being stuck doing this for somebody you love but also resisting it in every way yeah that's that's incredible and so I know on this next question, I know it's something that you always get all the time, but we can't ignore the fact that, um, you know, in your film, this was Robert Vaughn's uh, last performance on screen. Um, but if you could, take me to Connecticut. It's the week before production starts yeah. when you were able to finally swallow your nerves and realize, like, <laughs> you were equipped to not only direct but act beside Robert Vaughn at the age of 27 for your directorial debut, may I add. Like, that's just yeah. crazy. Oh, Take it us there. Insane. I'm just fascinated, <laughs> like, with that. Like, you ha- I, I honestly, I was just so impressed when I saw, um, you know, your film and, like, you come across the desk. I was just like, wow so young but i think that that's so powerful and so for the audience that's listening if you could just talk about um you know how you swallowed your nerves yeah uh, that's such a good question and actually a different way of like no one's asked me that specifically that's really cool um yeah it was it was a battle like right after he was cast i was immediately excited and then freaked out and kept thinking that i yeah and i was so young and thinking that something would happen that would make me come across as inexperienced and he wouldn't want to be a part of the project. And I just kept, I don't know, my mind tends to spiral out of control sometimes and I overthink things. Um, But yeah, right before the shoot, uh, you know, I had a lot of conversations with him preparing leading up to it. And I just kind of had to say to myself, look, he said yes for a reason. He wants to be a part of this. And this is my chance to, you know, act and direct, act with and direct a a legends and um, you just got to do it. (laughs) So it was just a lot of um, trusting that he said yes for a reason and using that to build my confidence because a seal of approval from him means that he trusted me. Um, And then once I was on set with him, it really quickly I grew comfortable with him because uh, he was, it was clear that he just wanted to make a really good film. And anytime I gave him direction, he was really listening and I couldn't see any kind of like doubt in his eyes or anything. He, he gave, he gave his all and um, went above and beyond in just um, being a, a good person and, and trying to get to know me beyond the the film shoot which obviously was helpful in playing my father in the film yeah um so yeah it, it was it was definitely a progression i was i was immediately terrified and then had to keep just doing these like gut checks with myself of saying he said yes for a reason um you know You've prepared, you've over-prepared, you're ready for this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that and and the vulnerability in that moment because I think so many times, like, um, especially for me personally, maybe it's just me personally, I feel like I've been preparing myself and I've gotten to this certain place where it's like the resume is there. Like, and, you know, even though, like, you feel confident, like, you, you, you know, like, okay, I wrote this film, like, um, I've planned this from you know A to Z, but like you still get that like 
but wait, what if I mess up? And so I think it's so important, like what you shared. So thank you. Um, Unfortunately, we kind of got to bring this interview to a close, but I definitely want to have you back on. I could talk for so much longer. I know, know, (laughs) I know. If you could like let people know how they can find the film, follow you, follow the film on social media. Yeah, so the film's on Amazon and Amazon Prime, so look for it there. And please um, write a review, uh, even a couple words. It's so helpful for for more people to discover the film. And also on social media, um, it's at Gold Star Film on Twitter and Instagram. And my social media is Victoria Negri on uh, Twitter and Instagram. But um, yeah, connect with me. I'm I'm you know all over social media. And please, yeah, check out the film. You've been listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and I've been talking with the writer, director, star of the film Gold Star, Victoria Negri. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Hey, everyone. This is Desmond Jackson, director of Funk Force. You are listening to Picture Lock with Kevin Sampson. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and Forbidden Steps is the tale of a man at crossroads. Commitment to country and career, the expectation of tradition and family, and faith in himself and the truth. I have the writer-director of the film, Iram Parveen Bilal. Iram, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to picture lock this film. <laughs> I love that. I love that response. I don't think I've ever gotten that response before. So <laughs> this is going to be a fun interview. I'm uh, unique. What can I say, Kevin? <laughs> I hear you. Iram, the first question I always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? You know, it's a difficult question because um, my family, uh, like a lot of South Asians from my parents' generation, was always in science, engineering, and, you know, sort of the medical field. And so my parents, when I think back to when I really fell in love with it, is my parents, uh, who were Pakistani, they were in Nigeria um, um, on jobs, you know, teaching science. And I remember they were obsessed with Bollywood. And um, they would always screen, though. So I'm the youngest of three girls. And so all the films were screened before showing to us, you know, to make sure they're like, you know, there was no PG rating back Mm, in the mm days. So I just remember distinctly how when we started watching, you know, when when the supply of the Bollywood VHSs started at Mina in Nigeria, my parents um, started the pre-screening ritual. And so I made an excuse to kind of sleep in their room, uh, saying that I was scared or whatever. I, I don't remember the specifics, but basically I would watch the entire three hour long film with half an eyelid open um, while they were screening the film uh, as I pretended to be sleeping in their middle uh, <laughs> on the bed. Uh, and then I would watch it again with my sisters once it was approved. And then because I was only seven or six, I would, you know, start repeating dialogues, and my mom would be like, "How do you know this dialogue?" <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I think I was obsessed with stories uh, since I was really young. Um, another thing that I recall usually is, you know, my cousins and I growing up in Pakistan. You know, we just go to get like bread from the uh, the, the oven. You know, those like stone ovens where fresh bread is made, tandoori. Mm-hmm. Uh, tandoori naan comes from tandoor, which is the clay oven. So we would go to go get you know our tandoori naans, and I'd come back and I'd be yapping away, and my cousin would be like, "We were all there with you. How do you see the world in this way? We don't have any story." Like 
there's just something I don't know. I think I have a, a weird, detailed way of observing the world, and you know, you can call it arrogance. A lot of storytellers feel like they have a certain point of view that needs to be heard. So I feel like my point of view needs to be heard, and that's kind of how I think the storytelling teams uh, were formed. Yeah, but you know, I think um, that that is the interesting part of it. I think as filmmakers, and it depends, you know, there's different sensibilities for everyone, and obviously the, the way that we're brought up, it kind of creates uh, the voice that we have um, with film. But I think you're right. It's that introspective quality that we all have as filmmakers um, that allows us to actually have a voice when we put it up on the big screen. So I totally get it. I, I think you're spot on with that. And if we could kind of jumping from there, you know, the little girl that was smart enough to sneak into her parents' room to, to, to pre-screen some of these films, like how did you actually get into the industry? You know, so, so I actually, I came from Pakistan um, to a very nerdy uh, university. I, I went to Caltech. I'm an environmental science engineer. And during my stint at Caltech, I, you know, it's a, it's a cutting edge institute for science and engineering. And it just, I don't know, it just, um, I loved science. I was good at it, but I just wasn't as passionate as the people around me. And, you know, these were the people who were going to lead their fields. And that's when I realized that I needed to do something where I could be working. I could be the hardest working person in the room and not feel like I'm working. And I'm fortunate that I was able to identify what it was. And so during my undergrad, I applied to a bunch of scholarships and um, I studied abroad and did a digital film production class at Sussex. And then I traveled um, around the world and filmed a documentary under a Watson Fellowship, which is kind of a, a non-academic Fulbright. Um, it's a type of a thing. Uh, they, they will not compare themselves to Fulbright, but essentially it's a hippie version of Fulbright. <laughs> um, and uh, I love it. I mean, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, and then, yeah, I went to USC uh, film school for my master's. And uh, that was 2007 when I graduated with my master's. And so that was in some ways kind of like the end, because I think being brought up in an Asian household, the idea of just jumping into film without a degree was very foreign to me. And so I'm, I'm glad that I was able to get the opportunity. But looking back, I don't think you need film school ever to make films. But it was an accelerated course of, you know, landing me from engineering straight into the middle of film. And so since 2007, I've been uh, writing and directing. I was very particular that I wanted to be a director. So I tried to not take any other desk jobs because for me, for some people it works. For me, I felt that I would get sucked into doing the best I could at whatever job I got and it would take me away from my intention. So I strictly took only story uh, crafting jobs. So I, I wrote, I directed, and I edited. So that's been kind of the last 10 years, 11 years. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of how it happened. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the writer-director of Forbidden Steps, Iram Parveen Bilal. Iram, you know, uh, once again... <laughs> We're going to have to have a longer conversation because uh, even the film school comment, yeah, uh, you're right. I always tell people, is film school necessary? No, but it's like basketball. If you learn the basics, then you can kind of really kind of, you know, do, you know, alley-oops through the legs as long as you know, like, kind of the main uh, platform for making films. I think one of the things that, as you were just discussing, you know, um, coming from um, a, a household 
that didn't necessarily think, you know, filmmaking is is for you. Um, could you talk a little bit about Forbidden Steps, right? Um, because I think representation is super important on the big screen. So I founded the DC Black Film Festival because I just felt like, you know, we need to see more, uh, a b bigger representation of people of African descent uh, on the big screen and their stories. Um, and so Forbidden Steps uh, is, is similar in terms of, like, we need to see, um, you know, Asian, Pacific Asian um, people on the big screen. Could you talk a little bit about um, the film and kind of where you are with it right now? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, going back to the film school comment that you made, uh, just wanted to quote James Baldwin, you know, he said, talent is insignificant. I know a lot of talented ruins. Beyond talent lie all the usual words, discipline, love, luck, but most of all, endurance. And I think that is what you need um, to survive in this field. So, you know, film school or not, I think the most important thing is faith in your abilities, working in your craft, and just not listening to people when they say no. <laughs> and that that's if you truly, truly want it, you know. Um, yeah. Going to Forbidden Steps, though. Um, so it was a forbidden step. Haha, -ha, you see what I did there uh, in my family. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, but at the same time, I think that my parents, like any parents, you know, they just wanted the best for me in terms of being able to earn a living and, you know, pay my bills, which, as we know, is very difficult in this field. Um, so they they initially kind of were not uh, into it. But, you know, ultimately, when they realized that I was not going to give this up and I was persistent, they decided that it was better for them to just back me up on it. <laughs> and um, and and now, I mean, that's what true love is, you know, when I'm kind of down and out and upset it's my mom who actually like sits and explains to me how hard this career is and you know and I'm just looking at her and being like really you're actually defending um me staying in it um Forbidden Steps actually something that I started writing in film school actually I started writing 2006 it's been uh, a while on and off it was a very dear dear story to my heart um and you know it was uh five years after 9-11 and I think just kind of going through what the Muslim American community was going through in terms of a backlash uh, and a white lash. Um, and so initially it started off as that. And then, you know, as it was a very personal story to me because in my family, there have been instances where people have kind of either gone very uh, conservative and by the book uh, as Muslims and some have gotten even more and more spiritual. So it just um, it was a reflection of what ideology means and what when the world around you starts boxing you, you start having this pressure of being a little more shades of gray in the definition because nobody wants to be boxed. So it was what was happening in response to the rest of the world suddenly trying to point at what being Muslim means. Uh, the Muslim community's reaction to that and being like, well, I'm not this and I'm not this. And, you know, and what type of Muslim are you? I never felt this need, you know, growing up. I never felt like anybody cared what I believed or what it was. And so Forbidden Steps came out of that. And it's essentially the story of a father and a daughter. And it's about a girl who wants to dance. Um, my Watson Fellowship was really about dance and how it's a taboo in, in uh, uh, you know, Muslim countries for women. And so this was almost a culmination of that. It was about a girl who wants to dance and a father who's actually very supportive. And it's about what happens when the grandfather comes into the picture. And um, the girl's father is a cop uh, who's very loyal to America. And it's about what happens again when 10 minutes into the film, his boss asks him to go undercover in a community mosque. And this happens to happen at the same time as the grandfather who's estranged shows up on his doorstep. So it's about 
you know, this definitions of family and how do you stay true to yourself and what you want to do but still belong to your family. And family here could be your blood family or it could be your national family or your, you know, whatever, however you want to interpret it. And so that is uh, what Forbidden Steps is and it has really evolved in the last 10 years. So basically because it was very personal to me, I kept putting it away, and, but it kept getting into, oh, the Film Independent Writers Lab, the Director's Lab, this lab. That. People wanted me to tell the story and so finally I've come face to face to it and two years ago I was like, wow, I'm, I'm going to make this, you know. Um, I, I kept getting pulled away with other projects and I think this is that passion project. So it's, um, you know, the longer it's going to be like wine. It's waited a while, and I think it's going to be really good. You know, and uh, hey, who doesn't love a, a glass of wine every now and then? Um, you know, as as I was listening to you, and unfortunately we're going to have to kind of bring the interview to a close, but um, one of the things that I gather as well is that um, it seems as though it's grappling with kind of self-identity and like how you identify the main character. Um, but then even within the Muslim American community, um, is that something that you really kind of hit on? Because I, I do, I mean, I, coming as uh, African American, right, like there is this sense of, you know, obviously with um, police brutality and things like that and this how we have to act and you can't necessarily be your self because sometimes being yourself in a certain situation might get you killed. Um, and so I'm wondering if, if like that's something that you grapple with as well as like telling a Muslim American story. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, there's 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 shades to that. One is that because you're Muslim American, do you have to tell Muslim American stories? OK, well, not really. But if you do choose to tell Muslim American stories, do they have to be a certain time? Do they have to fit the white gaze of what Muslim Americans are? And so absolutely, I think in trying to tell these stories, my uh, my goal has always been to just try and tell a slice of life story so that you can put another data point, um, you know, of what it means to be Muslim American in the space time of how America views Muslim Americans. Because storytelling to me is always about empathy as it is to most people. So the more stories we can, we can put out there that are about complex shades of gray characters, the more people will start empathizing and understanding, look, these people are just human. All these labels ha are labels, but at the end of the day, they have the same issues and the same struggle and the same strife of love and war and hate and, you know, heartbreak and whatever that we are going through because we better get, you know, on the same page as, as human beings and as different races and whatever hyphenates we want to call ourselves because we have a bigger war to fight, which is of limited resources on this earth. So the sooner we can all get on the same page and get over these misunderstandings, I think the better chance we have of survival as a human race. Well said. Um, so, Aram, if you could uh, let people know how they can follow you, uh, follow the film, um, and even get involved um, into helping to make sure that it comes to the big screen. Absolutely. Um, uh, the best way to follow the film is on Facebook at Forbidden Steps. Um, it's literally just facebook.com slash Forbidden Steps. I'm at Iram P. Bilal, I-R-A-M-P-B-I-L-A-L. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a, we're still, you know, we're aligned with a fiscal sponsor, so people can get tax write-offs if they want to contribute to the film. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for your time and for uh, giving us um, some time on your show. 
It's definitely been my pleasure, and you are going to have to return as soon as you get picture locking. You know, you got a, a screening link that you can send, and, and it's hitting the festival circuit. I can't wait to catch up with you on this film. Uh, Writer-director of Forbidden Steps, Aaron Parveen Bilal, thank you so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thank you, Kevin. Have a great day. Bye. Let's take a quick break for promos. Stay tuned. For you, the listeners of Picture Lock's podcast, Gamefly is offering a premium free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I used to play PlayStation a ton pre-kids. I had money to buy the latest game out, but I really don't have the time or money like I used to to give towards my hobby. That's why Gamefly makes so much sense. For a low monthly fee, I can get the latest console and handheld game delivered to my door. I keep it as long as I want and can send it right back to get a new one. The cool thing is, if you like a game so much that you don't want to send it back, you can keep it for a low used price. There are never any due dates or late fees. To get your free trial today, go to GameflyOffer.com slash PictureLock. Again, that's GameflyOffer.com slash PictureLock for your free 30-day trial. What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting PictureLock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things. And as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started Picture Lock PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLock PR. Finally, a partner as passionate as you. Hello, this is director-producer of the feature documentary Big Voice, Varda Barkar, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and in the 12 lives of Sissy Carlisle, shy, spunky Sissy Carlisle has a secret. She has 11 lives, daring imaginary women whose exciting adventures she creates in secret journals. But Sissy is at a crossroads. Since her parents' untimely death seven years ago, she's quietly run their antique shop. Now a charming new friend tempts Sissy to leave her fantasies and discover what her real life, number 12, might become. I have the producer-director of the film, Fran Burst Terranella, on the line. Fran, welcome to Picture Lock. Hi, thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Fran, the first question I usually start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? 1967. I was taking a film studies course sort of by accident one summer, and we watched like hundreds of films. And one night, 16 millimeter projector wearing this amazing French New Wave film by Elaine Renee, the last year at Marion Bad, comes up, and it was in French. At that time, I was pretty good in French. And it just took me into worlds I'd never been into inside people's minds. It's a really odd film. You never know if 
it's a real story or someone's dreaming if these people are even real. And I thought, wow, because I'd always done drawing and painting, photography, piano, theater, uh, dance. I'm very good at that. And <laughs> then all, any, any, and we put on shows when we were little. And uh, my aunt has always called me the bossy one. I guess I must have been a little more directive in those shows than I remember. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was film brings it all together. It's everything. It's music, it's voices, it's story, it's visual. And I've done photography my whole life, and so I've also shot a lot of my films. But I don't shoot when I'm working with actors, because for me as a director, it's really important for me to be able to talk in advance and plan shots and always be available, but to really be into the, the the moment, the instant that the actor is there and feel like I'm the person watching this on a screen. Yeah, and, and I think as a director, right, you have to do that um, just in terms of you're watching the performances and you're the one that says, hey, you know, let's do that one more time. I think we can take it a different route. That makes a lot of sense. If you it's could- freedom. And I, I admire people that can, can run the camera and also direct. And I've done that in my documentaries. I've done several hundred documentaries. I often do film those, but it's so different with actors. <laughs> right. If you could, Fran, give us a little history lesson in terms of your breaking in story. Like, how did you actually get started in the industry? Well, I went to film school at the University of Texas at Austin. And um, my first undergrad, I did art and uh, photography. And then I went to the film school. And when I walked in the first production class uh, for film, the the teacher said, well, you girls can stay, but everybody knows women don't make movies. And until that point, it had never occurred to me it wasn't something I could just do. Because I was a big fan of Agnes Varda, who was not, she was a very young filmmaker at the time, and I, I knew Ida Lupino had made films. But then when I actually went and looked, yeah, he was right, there weren't a lot of women filmmakers. But I just figured he didn't really mean me. So I just... <laughs> I like that. I, well, he couldn't have because I knew I was going to make films. And so I the, the, I did a lot of, you know, little bits of film experimentation with learning how to shoot. But the first film I did that was kind of me won second place at the University of Texas uh, film, film uh, contest. It was a huge screening in this big hall. And... This is when you're projecting films that are, like, taped together on a splicer. So it's terrifying. You don't know if your film's just going to burn before your eyes. But it was just so amazing. People liked my films. And I had done well in photography. So I thought, well, I'll just keep doing this. And then when I got out of school, my husband and I actually went. We were in Texas. We were, and uh, we went to L.A. And we went to New York in our little station wagon. And we parked the station wagon in Boston. But um, And we... People just said, we don't hire girls. This was in the early 70s, and it was girls. They didn't say women. It was kind of odd. And there was, you know, always the hint of sexual flavors, but I was married, and I I just ignored it, honestly. It was horrible, but I didn't pay attention to it because it couldn't be a distraction. So eventually we, we decided to move to Atlanta because it is such an open city and such a fascinating city, and... It's got lots of trees, 
and they had just sort of started their film industry here. Deliverance had been shot. The governor had started a film office. And so I actually just started seeing I was a director and went around and I worked on some commercials I shot. I did sound on a feature because I learned the technical side of everything, which is infinitely valuable. And um, eventually I started working steadily at a couple of different places doing documentaries. And then after I found film partners, she and I made two documentaries that actually one ran ended up running on ABC and one ran on a, most of the PBS stations. They were about these fascinating women. And so we decided we'd start our own business. And it's just amazing what can happen if you tell people you do something and then you actually can do it. You know, so the business has gone very well. I started that in the early 80s, and people have frequently hired my company to direct documentaries and to direct pieces for TV, commercials, public service announcements, marketing, and I've done a ton of work for nonprofits. And when they're national, I usually, you know, there's a budget, but I'll very always do some pro bono work in my main pro bono client in Atlanta the last several years has been the yeah, the Chattahoochee River Keeper, which is wonderful group. Well um gets me out outside a lot in the river. Yeah. And uh friend, I definitely want to get into uh the twelve lives of Sissy Carlisle. Real quick, you're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the producer director of the film, The Twelve Lives of Sissy Carlisle. And uh, I'm definitely glad that you did not listen to that <laughs> professor that said, hey, you wouldn't make films. Um, but <laughs> Because now we're talking about um, this film. So if you could, just let the audience know kind of what the film is about and what inspired you to create it. Sissy is a person who's very quiet on the outside, but what goes on in her head is just fascinating. And at the time that I encountered the script, it was written by a former student of mine. I taught for 14 years at the Art Institute of Atlanta. And I, he hadn't even finished it, but I got to like the first page, maybe 15. And Sissy was just such an odd character because she has these fantasy lives. She doesn't live them out in her life because she runs this antique shop that was she inherited from her parents. And she's shy, a little bit shy. But my God, you cannot pull anything over on her if somebody tries to really, you know, act like she doesn't know what's going on. She's a really sharp girl. So, but she has these wild stuff going on in her head. And it just reminded me so much of, I think, the other lives we all have and hopefully the good ones. Uh, Right. She does some dark things in these other lives. So that was kind of interesting, too. So I just knew I had to make the movie. So we mostly uh, self-funded. We worked with the Screen Actors Guild Ultra Low Budget and worked with a great cast. And I have a lot of friends in the industry who have kindly participated as producers for segments, as locations, equipment. You know, we had a budget, but it's, it's been tied. And uh, I just wanted people to get Sissy's story because so often we don't, let ourselves even dream about who we might be and what we might do. And Sissy's message really is follow your dreams. And if 
you want to have a real life, go live it. You know, I I find it kind of interesting because it it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, what happens to a dream deferred, Langston Hughes. And um, I, I find now, for me, you know, almost 35, um, that there's the, there's this real moment in your life where it's kind of like, do you, you know, buckle in and go after your dream, or do you kind of let it fall to the wayside uh, in the ability or in the pursuit of, you know, maybe paying paying the bills and you just got to, you know, you have a family or whatever the case may be. And so you have to let that go. So I think that's really um, an interesting insight into why you wanted to um, bring Sissy to life on the big screen. Um, if you could, I know the, the film has been on the festival circuit. Like what has been audience reception to it thus far? It's fascinating to, to be with an audience. And we've gotten... We've got two Best Actress Awards, one Best Supporting Actor, one Best Film, one Best Director, and several other kind of featured film-type opportunities as opening film, things like that. What I find when I'm with the audience or when people contact me after they've seen the film is just this self-awareness of, just like you said, it's, well, who do I want to be? Who might I be? Even if they seem very accomplished in what they're doing, there's always some opportunity perhaps to explore something we haven't done. Sometimes it's professional, artistic. Sometimes it's maybe people who decided that they want to move somewhere different or they want to work for themselves or go get a job. Either way, it's so fascinating. But most people, it's about their inner self and the confidence and the belief, and really letting that passion go to go figure out how to do what it is that makes it worth getting up in the morning. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the woman who didn't let anyone tell her she couldn't make films, and now she's unlocking other people to go and chase their dreams with the film The Twelve Lives of Sissy Carlisle. And unfortunately, Fran, we're going to have to bring the interview to a close, but if you could... Let people know how they can uh, see the film, follow you guys on social media, etc. Hey, we'd love for you to follow us. Our website is sissycarlislemovie.com. S-I-S-S-Y-C-A-R-L-Y-L-E, movie.com. And there you can access our Facebook and Twitter, and we would just love to have thousands of supporters. Because as we get into looking for distribution opportunities, We'd love to share the film internationally, possibly on TV, here in other countries, and also, of course, make it available online. And I hope all of you all will get a chance to see it. And if you'll follow us on Facebook, we will definitely keep you posted on when it's available where. And we'll probably be doing a tour this year, taking it to some theaters in, in the States. So I'd love to have the support of all film lovers. Thank you. Producer, director of the film The Twelve Lives of Sissy Carlisle, Fran Burst, Terranella, thanks for coming on Picture Lock. Thank you. It's just a delight, Kevin. Hi, this is uh, director and cinematographer Stephen Tringali of the documentary Quarter 4, and I'm on Picture Lock with my good friend Kevin Sampson.
You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and the web series Doomsday follows the daily lives of the residents of Yesterday's Promise, a millennial cult and self-sustaining green community hidden in the Catskill Mountains, featuring both present action inching toward Doomsday and flashbacks revealing how and why each member came to join the secretive sect. The series explores the gray area where youthful idealism evolves into deadly extremism and documents the eerie final months leading up to a horrific Jim Jones-style massacre. I have the series creator and star, Sonia O'Hara, on the line. Sonia, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. It's great to be here. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. So the first question I always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? Absolutely. Well, I grew up, I was a child actor, so I did that kind of my entire life and knew that I wanted to act um, as a really young child in Nova Scotia, Canada. But I think one of the really pivotal moments where I said, whoa, you know, the kind of work that I was falling in love with was when I saw David Lynch's film Mulholland Drive. It was just such a twisted, dark, intriguing, non-narrative type of storyline And I said, wow, I want to make films like that and I want to act in films like that. So that was kind of one of my early inspirations where I was like, this is such a trippy medium and there are so many incredible things that you can do as a storyteller. You know, I don't think I've gotten Mulholland Drive yet, but, you know, I do think that that (laughs) totally informs kind of Doomsday. Like, that's really awesome. I can see that. So Thank you. Yeah. If you could give us a history lesson, like how, how did you get started in the industry? So that's that's incredible. You're a child actor, and uh, I, I definitely want to figure out what at what point did you say, hey, I want to get um, behind the camera rather than in front, but right. please, history lesson. Absolutely. So I moved um, from Nova Scotia to New York at 17 to attend acting school, and I loved it. I was very happy and fulfilled. And then when I was done school, I moved to L.A. I was 20 years old. And the kind of roles that people give young actresses like that, it's just appalling. I mean, now we have the whole Me Too movement and people are rebelling against that kind of sexism in the industry. But at that point, you know, being cast as like cheerleaders or just really generic roles that didn't take any of the intelligence or any of the training that I had in acting school. It was just frustrating. And at that point, I started to write projects that had the kind of roles that I was interested in playing. And fast forward a couple years later, I moved back to New York and I had been supporting myself as an actress in LA, which was great. And definitely um, was, I was in a privileged position to be able to do that, but I wasn't feeling artistically fulfilled. So I moved back to New York and I started studying with a screenwriting teacher in New York and I started to write this narrative feature film. And I think this is where kind of naivety was a blessing for me because I went from having never made a short film or a student film or anything to writing and producing a feature film. And that was my first movie, Ovum, which now is available on demand and on iTunes and everywhere else. But I wrote that based on my own experience donating my eggs and kind of the weird world of designer eggs and eugenics and all of this kind of like interesting dark stuff. So that very much informed the kind of work that I wanted to make as a writer and storyteller. And from there, I wrote the screenplay for Doomsday. And I was always kind of intrigued by cults. 
But what got me really excited about writing about that world was when I lived in L.A., one of my very first jobs out there, I thought that I was acting in just, you know, this weird industrial video where I was playing this girl who couldn't get a date. And then I go through some sort of um, education and I come out on the other side and I'm suddenly eloquent and vivacious and all of these things. And then a couple years later, people started to see me on the Scientology website and it was clear that by accident, I had acted in these Scientology propaganda films. And I was like, whoa, this is really crazy. And I started to want to read about what makes people join cults, what makes them stay, and kind of about Stockholm Syndrome. And that was kind of what was behind the screenplay for Doomsday. And I've been obsessed ever since. I was writing about cults, not being in them. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> no, I totally understand. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and I'm talking with the creator and star of Doomsday, Sonia O'Hara. Yeah, um, you know, that's that's really interesting to me um, how, you know, like you said, just kind of growing up and then deciding, hey, I'm going to write kind of the things that I want to see and, and partake in and um, how that experience has uh, brought you to Doomsday. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, as I watched um, the, the first episode, one, the, the big thing that, like, automatically stood out to me is, like, I was just like, man, I could just watch this on Netflix. Like, it just feels like it's such, uh, like, the binge quality. But the thing about yes, it is... Thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely welcome. Oh, don't worry. I got some more praise to give you. Hold on tight. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about it is, like, you're, you're, you're um, immersed into this world, and it feels r- fully realized in terms of the characters. And slowly but surely, you're kind of able to understand as the viewer, like, kind of what's going on, who's in charge, um, and all those kinds of things. So uh, I guess you kind of gave us like what inspired you to create uh, Doomsday, but um, if you could, just in terms of like creating this this world and environment, like uh, what all went into it? Did you have like a Doomsday Bible for it, or you know, how did you um, create it? Yeah. So I do have a Doomsday Bible, and we and when I wrote alone, but I definitely worked with. Uh, a team of other people that produced the show. So when I was writing, I was very aware of the logistics of having sort of a limited lower budget. But sometimes I think with the limitations of budget, that's when you have the most creativity. So I was like, okay, I have this beautiful house in the Catskills that somebody that is in my writing class said that she had this place. She was like, darling, I have a place in the Catskills. Would you like to shoot there? And I was like, are you serious? This is amazing. (laughs) So I was kind of everything that I was given or that I had an opportunity to be able to use, like the incredible nature up there, the mountains. There were just so many things that started to infuse their way into my script. So I believe that kind of there are the characters that are in the cult, but then the other character that is so instrumental to the success of the show is kind of the environment. And we have this palette that's filled with like these greens and 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 these like pale golds of the grass and like flowers and 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 like the natural bodies of water. And we because of that, we were like, okay, how do we shoot this? We're shooting in nature. You know, we're not going to be able to bring in giant lights. So we found uh, the camera, the Sony A7S, because of its facility with low light. That was one of the reasons like why we decided that aesthetic, because we were like, okay, we have scenes where we have people skinny dipping in the moonlight. You know, how are we going to shoot this? <laughs> right. And 
and scenes like that that were like, okay, just, you know, being practical. And I used this incredible cinematographer named Dan McBride, who is definitely an artist. And we would kind of work together on saying, okay, well, these people live without any sort of artificial light. So how can we shoot this without artificial light? That kind of became a game that we played when we were doing it while still making it beautiful and eerie and dreamy. So that was really fun. And then the whole cast lived together on location in this house. And people are, you know, with air mattresses crashing on the floor and bunking up. And because of that, we joke that we sort of became a cult on camera by, you know, sort of living like one in real life. Right. Because we all became best friends. And even now, a couple of years after we made that first episode, everyone, when we get into festivals for the show, and we've been very lucky, um, and we've won awards for it. But every time we get into a festival, it's as if the whole team goes on the road and we rent an Airbnb in a town and we kind of the whole doomsday cult descends on whichever <laughs> festival. And it's really, really fun. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Um, <laughs> so I, I should mention that uh, Doomsday will be playing at DC Web Fest, uh, which yes. takes place April 6th through 8th. So folks, you can definitely check it out then. Um, so I, I do want to know, Sonia, like what has the audience response been to uh, the series thus far? Well, it's been pretty incredible because you never know when you make something, if there's going to be an audience, if people will respond, if critics will respond. But last year, the show qualified for the Emmy Awards, which was exciting. And then from there, I ended up getting representation as a writer and director and it was a finalist for the Sundance Lab. So we have all those laurels that are cool and fun, but don't really mean anything outside of the industry. So the part that was exciting for me was meeting people that had seen an episode or two of the show that were just suddenly like really fanatical about kind of conspiracies of where various characters would go. <laughs> like that's the most exciting when you meet these like diehard people that like are like coming up with like crazy scenarios that I hadn't even thought of. And I was like, oh my God, I want to write that. That's amazing. Right, right. So yeah, and so that's great. Like any sort of fan response is so unexpected and really nice. So besides the episode that we're going to be showing at the DC Web Fest, I'm also excited to say that other episodes have just landed on Amazon Prime. So if you are a member, you can watch it for free on their two different episodes, I think, than what we're showing at DC Web Fest. But yeah, so there's a way for a bigger audience to see the show. That is incredible. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the creator and star of Doomsday, Sonia O'Hara. Sonia, first off, congratulations. The fact that you're able to get um, representation and into the lab Thank and all that. that is that is That's the dream, right? Like, that's awesome. <laughs> it's been a really exciting year, and you make a lot of things before then, before people, and then people think, oh, it's an overnight success. <laughs> exactly. You know, but... <laughs> no, that, that that's so true because um, I was talking with the, the producer of Black Panther and just talking about how, mm. you know, on his IMDb, you would think that, like, he just came on the scene um, for, like, Captain America Winter Soldier. But it's like, nah, he was interning at Columbia Pictures for a long time before. Sure. You know? <laughs> so many people were PAs and on tiny things before they worked their way up. Right. God, Black Panther was amazing. That's exciting that you got to speak to him. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, all right, so we kind of got to bring things to a close, but if you could, yes. let folks know how they can find out more about Doomsday, follow you guys on social media, etc. 
Absolutely. So uh, they can go to www.doomsday-series.com or they can go to Amazon Prime and just write in Doomsday um, <laughs> because we're up there now. And um, to follow me, it's at Sonia O'Hara at Twitter, S-O-N-J-A-O-H-A-R-A. And they can go to SoniaO'Hara.com is my website. And I am excited to say that I'm going to be speaking at South by Southwest on Monday. I'm going to be on their indie TV panel, and I'm going to be announcing that I have a brand new show. So keep your eyes in the trades and um, variety and deadline and whatnot to hopefully read an update on that. Yeah. (laughs) Sonia, you just come with like all these exciting announcements. That's (laughs) awesome. Congratulations, folks. If you're out at South by Southwest, then you definitely want to check her out. It seems like I'm going to have to run this interview this Friday to make sure that folks know about that. Yeah, that would be wonderful. (laughs) Next Monday. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. This was such a pleasure. No problem. That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guests, Victoria Negri, Iram Parveen Palau, Fran Burst Terranella, and Sonia O'Hara for coming on the show. You can find Picture Lock on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Pinterest, and Periscope. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash Picture Lock Show and subscribe to it to get some incredible value and see interviews with filmmakers and the like. You can download the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, and other places podcasts are downloaded. Feel free to give the show a hearty review if you're enjoying it. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website. Did this episode resonate with you? What's your favorite Picture Lock episode of the year so far? Have you seen one of the films from the film Fatales? Did you binge on Doomsday? These are the questions I need answers to. Send me an email and let me know at picturelockshow at gmail.com. All music is done by Mike S. The Prophet 13. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film. <laughs>